a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Good morning. I'm already sipping the coffee. But yeah, we're on the 15th lesson in in Genesis. We're in chapter 12, and it is all of chapter 12. That's good. We're, we get a chance to move along a little bit. I know we, we've been, had a few, a few studies to where we'd hit nine verses, six verses, <laughs> and that would take an hour plus because there's giant things that are happening. And now we're into a part of the, the narrative here that, Again, it's it's really important. It's really big. A lot's going on, and you know, Abraham. You know, we're on on Abram's call or Abraham's call, and this is Abraham and Sarah and the beginning of their journey and the beginning of how they're walking with God. It's a major part of the narrative. It's a major part of the story of God's people and and moving out and onwards. But we, it's things that it's obviously so. So there's. Because there's more obvious parts with that, there's less in-depth pieces we need to cover. So it's just it's just one of those weird things to where you'd think some of these other ones would go really fast, and some of these ones that you might take more time in. No, we're, it's it's sometimes sometimes the nuggets are are hidden where we don't necessarily see them. So let's go ahead and let's dig into this Genesis chapter twelve, the whole thing, verses one or twenty in the English Standard Version. Now the Lord said to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh, and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called to Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, 
and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay, so we're breaking this down into two basic areas. It does break down maybe a bit further, but for for what we're doing, we're just breaking this down into two areas. First of all, verses 1 and 9, this is Abram's call. And then 10 to 20, this is Sarai and Egypt. It's really both of them in, in Egypt, but I want to I want to make the point that it's both parties going on here. It's not just one. Well, let's dig into it. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you." The Lord said, in Hebrew this is actually a it's a past perfect tense. Okay, so when we read this in English, some of the stuff is missed. If you remember last week, I was telling you that this call appears to have come prior or before they were in Haran. Well, this is part of that, is the actual language that's being used in Hebrew, which we don't necessarily get in English. This is a past perfect tense, meaning that God had already said, and maybe potentially he was saying it again. I mean, if you've ever gotten a call from God, sometimes he tells us a few times because we're we're knuckleheads and it takes us a little bit. Now, I want I want to point out a, a big theme that we're looking here in this act of the book is land. The land is a big theme throughout this section of Genesis. So so notice here you're going to leave your 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 father's land. You're going to leave the land of your people and you're going to go to the land that I'm giving you and it's moving forward. Okay, so the land is a big theme, but but check out here how this spreads. And he, he talks about, and he, God tells Abram, starting from large to narrow down and small, what he's leaving. All of which is hard, okay? All of which is hard, but he narrows it down to probably the most intimate and most personal that makes it the hardest to do. It says, go from your country. Go from your land. The word here for country is the same word, and I think, yeah, I have it right here, is the same word for land. And it's Ares. Now, Ares means earth. It really just means earth. It can be used for city. It can be used for country. It can be used for land. It can actually be used all the way down for the underworld, meaning it's just, it's a place of the dead as well, which is kind of telling because, I mean, you know, earth is now the place of death. It's where things happen, right? We, we die. We weren't supposed to, but because of sin entering the world, we now die. And so Ares can actually mean the land of the dead. Now, the, the word here that he's using, that Moses is giving as the idea of, hey, leave this place, this land to go to the next land, he's using the same word. So it's the same exact meaning here. So leave your land. Leave your kindred, your your brethren, your your not just your family, but your people, like your entire people group. Okay, now we've we've gone through, did some of the genealogies, but we also know they had other sons and daughters and the populations were growing, right? So this, this people group is saying, leave your people. So leave your country, leave your land, leave your region, leave your people. And he says it all the way down to, and your father's house. And we talked last time that, most likely his father passed away and then they left. Okay, so leave your father's house. Notice it, notice it doesn't say, God doesn't say, leave your father, which would be an indication that he was still alive, right? Because this is speaking past. Something's already happened. It's not saying leave your father. He's saying leave your father's house. Okay, leave your father's house, which actually means Leave your family. It's not saying leave leave your wife. That's not what's being said because two become one. That is a very integral part of marriage and biblical doctrine on marriage. The two become one. If God calls one, he's calling both, at least to some degree. I know some pastors will, will say, you know, hey, you hire the pastor, you don't hire the pastor's wife or the pastor's husband, depending on the church, the church group, whatever else, right? I mean, there, there's something to that, but at the same time, there's also something to the two become one and you work as a team. It's, it's you know, teams work differently depending on the situation, right? So take it as you will. But 
when God calls, he calls both. And in this, he's saying, I want you to leave this area and go to the next area, the, the land that I am giving you. And with that, it's not a, Abram, leave everything. I just want you. It's Abram, it's time for you to go. And that includes your wife. Okay, so that is the directive. Also notice, this is the land that I will show you. It's not the land that I told you about. Abram didn't really know where he was going. They, they knew because to some degree, the general direction in which they were probably going to go. And we can say that because we we already saw this. They Before, they were heading towards the land of Canaan. Still, they're heading towards the land of Canaan again. So they have the general direction of where they're going at least, but they don't know for sure the end point of where they're going. They just know you're going in this direction, which can be... I mean, in some ways, I guess, exciting to, to not necessarily know exactly where you're going and exactly what you're doing. But it really is, it can really also be very terrifying to just not know what what's the end goal. I mean, and then keep in mind, Abram's family was, they were pagans. So he's got a pagan background. Pagan gods were kind of brutal to people. Well, this this might be kind of a scary situation. If I don't follow, what's he going to do to me? And if I do follow, he's taking me from all of my security, taking me from my family. He's taking me from my people. He's taking me from my own country, my own region. What is this God going to do to me? So this is a very terrifying thing in this situation. But he's going to have to have faith and move forward and, and go through this. Remember, this is, this is a section to where, yes, God created everything and had relationship with, meaning, you know, he communed with, he discussed and did stuff with Adam and Eve, and then things separated. And that interaction was very different. We start seeing lots of different ways that, that humanity was going against God constantly, so much that he wipe the earth and start it over again with the flood, right? And then people, again, even with the same command, spread out, fill the earth, occupy, and and expand. Like, produce more people and spread out. Go and be my image bearers over the whole earth. They kept falling away from that and weren't doing it and weren't doing it. And so we had to do it again. And then we had the Tower of Babel, right? Where he split the people up and he divided their languages and he did placeholders. Go back to the Tower of Babel episode, you know, we did placeholders, God did placeholders with the divine council. And so now you have the situation to where people don't, people then, much like now, don't typically want to really follow God or follow God well and would rather follow these really kind of malevolent, either non-existent deities, you know, non-existent spirits or potentially some other kind of a spirit that's just harsh and mean and, you know, hey. And so this situation is a little different than what we might think today inside of the church. Things are a little different. So this is probably a very scary situation for Abram and for Sarai. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. But we see something that's actually kind of cool here. And we're going to see it here in just a little bit, but let's let's keep on with this, this section of the narrative. Two and three. And I will make of you a great nation. Now, great here 
this is the beginning of, of that covenantal stance, right? This is a covenantal structure built into this. The language in Hebrew actually reads more like a covenant. And it reads quite literally as if we were going to take a literal, a direct literal translation and just move it to English, would say, so that I might make you a great nation. Not, and I will make of you, but that I might. Go there that I might make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. See, this is the promise. This is that beginning promise that is to encourage Abram to follow through and go with this. God is telling him, I'm not, I'm not like the lowercase g gods that you've been worshiping or that your family worship. I want to make you great. I want to make your name great. I want to bless you. And on top of this, I want to make a great nation of you. If you remember last week, it's already known that Sarai's barren. They already know she can't have kids. So this is a very bold statement to hear from God. My wife's barren. I know my wife's barren. And you want to make a great nation out of me? Um, this is okay. But then he follows up with three, you know, verse three. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Side note on the very end of that, it's kind of a vague statement in Hebrew. I do think that ESV captures it pretty well as to what this would mean. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because that really goes with the rest of the gospel (laughs) and the Bible. Like that's just kind of how it works. But let's go through this. He's going to make a great nation. A great nation. Now this great nation, this is both in numbers and in significance. The Israelite nation, the nation of Israel, is a prominent nation that has created ripples throughout the world. And I don't care what side of history you decide to land on on that. There are people who love Israel. There are people who hate Israel. There are people who, I don't know. The Bible says to, you know, people fall in all different areas of this. Quite frankly, it doesn't really matter what part of this you fall into. You still have to recognize Israel has been a wave maker, right? They have been a great nation in significance, meaning they were a very significant nation and they're coming back and they're another significant player in that part of the world, right? They they really, God really did fulfill that. He really did make them a great nation, both in number, the Jewish people, there's, they're it, grand numbers, grand numbers. Not not even 100 years ago, multiple countries tried to wipe out the Jewish population completely off the face of the earth. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. And they're going strong now again. And Israel's back. I mean, it's just one of those things that it just keeps going. So God made them a great nation as in numerical and a great nation as in power and status. Okay, let's take a look at Isaiah 51.2. It's another taste of this. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. I mean, this is another thing. Like, look, look, <laughs> look back in history. I can make things happen, right? God's telling, I can take a baron and an old man and create the nation that is my chosen people that spreads out and will be there till the end of days. It's not going to go away. The people are not going to go away. says, bless. Now, the term bless here, a fun fun little note on this. And this is really interesting. Read into it what you're going to read into it. I I brought it in here. I hesitated to bring it in because I know people are going to read into this. But it is such an interesting piece that it, it almost just needs to be said. The term bless, it only occurs five times five times from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. That's it. It happens five times in these three verses alone. God's talking to Abraham, Abram at the time, and saying, I'm going to bless you. This term bless, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those that bless you. 
that term happens five times in three verses when it hasn't, when it just barely happened the same amount five times in the last 11 chapters altogether. The narrative is shifting. The narrative is shifting. God's plan is starting to move forward. The stage is set. God is now developing and moving his plan forward with how to bring his creation back. That is the significance part of this. God has already, things things fell apart and he has worked his plan and things are now in place to where he can begin that plan with the family to start to bring his creation back. It says, make your name great. In ancient Near East, your, your name was more than just a title. Okay, it, it meant the stat, like your status, your character. Your name meant something. Your father's name meant something. Your father's father's name meant something. Okay. And your children's names meant something. The 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 heritage went both directions. And this is one of the things with that type of society. It, you know, when you start talking honor, shame, shame was always used in, in that type of society, and it still is today, for reconciliation. It was always used as a way to bring people back, right? It was to keep things in order as to maintain that balance for the entire family. And if there was shame given, it was a shame to bring people back into position and, and order. It wasn't a, you know, you're shamed, you need to leave. It was a shame like you need to get back in line and let's let's keep doing, doing this in the proper direction and the proper order. A little different than we think of shame here in the United States and in the West. So your name being great is the great stature because if Abraham had done really, really bad things, that would set the stage for the entire Israelite people. Okay, well, the Israelite people then would change the name of Abraham as well. All right, so it, it goes both directions. And that's that's kind of what's being said here is I'm going to make your character and your name known and relevant, your stature and status known throughout. We still say Father Abraham today. So, I mean, <laughs> say that, that kind of works. Uh, and then the bless and the curse, because you, you get here in verse three, I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. So since God chose Abraham and Abraham here to, to bring blessing to the whole world, he's going to bless those who bless him and woe to those who dishonor him. But notice the, the way that this is phrased, because there is a distinct difference here in the phrasing of this. I will bless those. God is coming out and saying, I'm going to bless those who bless you. Those who, who are good to you, I'm good too. But he says it in reverse. He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. He flips that. I'm not, and it doesn't say, I will curse those who dishonor you. It says, those who dishonor you, I will curse. It can feel in English like we're, we're cutting hairs here. But inside the language, there's a reason why this is flipped. This actually shows God's desire to bless over God's desire to curse and to do bad and to, to do ill towards people. God's desire is for the good of man and woman, you know, mankind, people. God wants to bless. Why? We're his creation. Not only are we his creation, we're his image bearers. We're made in his image. He wants to do good to us and for us. Unlike most of the pagan deities that really don't, you get into modern era and, and everyone's tried to turn things around to make it seem like every belief system is for good and every belief system teaches the same thing. No, they don't. Not even close do they teach the same basic things. Not even close. People who say they teach the same things might actually want to look into things just a smidge because they're not even close. This is a defining characteristic of the God of the Bible. He desires to do good towards people. He's not saying do good for me. Just do it for me. Just do it for me. There's sacrifices, but that is trying to bridge that gap and to fix the relationship. Okay, this is not a, I need you to just do for me because I'm a needy God and I, I want you to put grapes in my mouth. Peasant, come here. No, he's saying, 
my job and what my desire is, not my job, but my desire is to bless you. And because my desire is to bless you through and all of humanity through you, those who bless you, I'm going to bless because I want to bless. I want to be a blessing. And those who dishonor you, who I have chosen to send my saving grace and how I'm getting my creation back, those who dishonor you, I will curse because they stand against me and my plan to bring creation back into order and to bring my people back to me. There's a difference. That is a defining difference. God is not looking. When you hear people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament especially, ugh, he just wanted to do horrible things to people. No, he didn't. He really didn't. And this right here shows that. He did not want to do bad. He wants to bless and wants to do good. All right, four and the first half of five. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Again, Lord in all caps is Yahweh. Some places that you look at, they'll say it's Adonai, but it's really, it's Yahweh, okay? So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Now notice the, the phrasing in that, Lot went with him. This wasn't, because this almost feels like a contradiction when we get a little bit further into five, saying he took. The reason that it's phrased this place this way right here is to let it known they didn't forcefully take Lot. This was something that Lot decided to do on his own. Lot decided, I'm, I want to go with you, uncle, right? This is their nephew. I'm, I want to go with you. I'm going to go with you. This was a choice of Lot. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was a young man, a young, young man at 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And we're going to pause right there. It's a big chunk of five, but that's where we're going to pause. Now, first thing, again, Abram's, the verb used here for Abram's first move, first action, right? Verb is an action, right? Actions, verbs, okay? In literary terms, his first action matched and complied completely with God's call and command. He moved. God's call was go. Go from all of this. So Abram went. In Hebrew, it means he walked. It's literally what it means. He, he walked. He got up and walked. He did this. Okay, so Abram followed and obeyed. Lot willingly went. Sarai it doesn't say, it doesn't say, but then again, culture was very different. That culture is very different today, even from, from Western societies. But then specifically, it really was very different. Why, if this is what we're doing? Okay. And they up and go. The, the head of the household was, I, wow, the head of the household and made these decisions and they went. So they went and they gathered, but notice this, and they gathered all their possessions, their things, they needed their tent to live in because they're a nomadic people group. And so they would take a tent. Now, not like a tent that we think of today that you pick up at REI or something, but like a big, nice tent. They would have their rugs. They would put it on multiple carts, load them up on donkeys and maybe horses or camels or whatever, and, and load it all up and they would go. And it says here that it took all their possessions that they had gathered, the people that they had acquired in Haran. Now, that sounds like slavery. We don't need to romanticize things here, right? That sounds like slavery. Well, the Hebrew here, and I'm I'm always curious as to why some of this gets translated in these ways. It's like you can look at into the words and you can get into what they actually mean. And then people just kind of come to this normal consensus. Okay. Nepes, if you get back, look, look back all the way to chapter one. Chapter one, verse 30. We talked about this word nepes. And, you know, the Hebrew term nepes, which means spirit. In fact, let's look at it in context in, in chapter one really fast. Chapter one, verse 30 says this, and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the nepes. Nepes means the breath of life. It means soul, spirit. 
okay? So this concept here that is written here in, in Genesis 12 as people in the ESV, this term people actually means living creatures, whether that would be humans or animals. So what's actually being said in the Hebrew here is they gathered all of their possessions and all living things that were going with them. The people, the oxen, the goats, which was all really normal. And if you're traveling by caravan, like they would have with this, you're going to have to have animals. But there's no note in here, really, of animals. They gathered, uh, they acquired, and they gathered all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to the land of Canaan. They had to have animals. But it was kind of assumed that they had animals. But the issue here is we say people, as in with nepes, that's the soul is only for people. Well, not that's actually not what we see in the word earlier in Genesis. And so with this is saying they gathered all their possessions, all their things that they would need, including all of the living that they need and were taking with them on the journey, whether that was animal, whether that was people. Yes, we don't need to romanticize this. Were there likely servants and slaves that were going? Yeah. I mean, you see comments all the time over all over the place in the Old Testament about and the strong and the young men, the strong young men. That wasn't always family members. It wasn't always just slaves either, but people who would devote themselves to a higher ranking person to go and do these things. We would call that a bond servant in the Greek, right? That is somebody who chooses to be a follower of or kind of a servant of to go and do that. Okay, so this right here is really an indication that they took their livestock, they took their people that were following them. All of the things. So they took their stuff and all of the living that would go forward with this. Now, let's finish up five and go all the way through nine. We're going to end this, this section right here, and it's pretty quick. So 5B, which is one sentence. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land into the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram. Now, let's just, let's stop. Let's actually do this kind of chunk by chunk, step by step as we go through this. They came into the land of Canaan and Abram passed through the land. The Canaanites were there. Okay, you, you get this other note right after that. Well, the, the Canaanites at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. So most of the commentaries are saying he was being respectful. He didn't want to invade and encroach on people's territories. Read up on the Canaanites. There's a reason you wouldn't want to encroach up on the Canaanites' territories. <laughs> so he was being prudent. He was being wise and he was being prudent in coming through and getting in this. So he was staying into the, the hill country to where he could just kind of be away from people, more so in the area where he should be, but away from most of the people. And he comes to the place of Shechem. Now, Shechem was an actual... Like it's a town. It was a known area. It was a smaller town that was inside of that hill country. Some consider it like the heart of the Canaanites area. Okay. So he comes to Shechem and to the Oak of Mora. Now, if you're reading in a different translation, you might see this as the Terebinth. Now, a Terebinth, there's a, a large tree. And Oak and Terebinth kind of both known as large trees that would stand above the other trees in the areas around it. They were abnormally large trees for where they were at. These types of trees, especially this one here, and there's multiple others throughout the Old Testament, but this one here is, is kind of a known one in that region. And large trees like this were oftentimes places of worship for pagans and, and different groups and different people. And so it wasn't, it was very common. It wasn't uncommon to have different altars there and different prayer rituals done there and different things happening there. Fun side note, one of the most commons, especially here at Shechem that happened was to a goddess of fertility. And so it kind of makes sense where they're getting to this, they're, they're hoping for things. They've come to the region and they, they move forward and they, they get to this already known kind of a an important ritualistic or even one would say a holy spot for the people of the area because it's a, it's that big tree that stands out. It's in the middle of middle of this region. It's on 
in the plains, potentially up on a hill right there, in this standout spot. It's a known holy spot. And so they they get to this known area. And so what happens? They pass through the land. They get to there. The Canaanites were in the land at the time. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram. Pause. That's not how it's phrased before. When we get when we go back to verse 1, it doesn't say that the Lord appeared and spoke to Abram. What it says is the Lord said. Now, was that in a dream? Was that through the Holy Spirit and giving him guidance to go? If you've ever heard from the Lord, that's often how it works. Okay. But here in verse 7, the Lord appeared. The Lord appeared. It is a very direct piece. How did the Lord appear? Well, many believe that this right here is actually a, a portion of theophany. God appears to Abraham, Abram and Abraham then three times, three times. And this is the first of the three. Flesh, like God in the flesh appearing to someone. Like the concept now is this was actually Jesus. Like pre-birth of Jesus, this was the son appearing in the form of a man, a human. We already know angels can do this, right? You, you, you get later on into this and angels show up and they can't tell. Like you can tell there's something different about them, but they were in the body of a man. And sometimes people wouldn't even recognize that they were something different than a man. Okay. And you even get that into the New Testament. You know, continued hospitality for some have hosted angels without knowing, right? So you get into this. We know angels can do this. And so we also know that God likes to work and do different things like this. And he was already in the garden, the Garden of Eden. It was part of the purpose of this was God to be there and walking through. Well, if God's walking through, he's got some kind of a, a body to do that with. And this is the concept is this right here. When the Lord appeared, most likely this is a time when the son, Jesus, was probably there talking with Abraham. And he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he, meaning Abram, built there an altar to the Lord. So he's at a place of worship where people are worshiping all sorts of different pagan gods, pagan deities, and he builds an altar to God. Abram's background is pagan. That's a normal concept for him to do, but he's also setting the stage to worship the true God, the most high, the right God. So he's setting the stage to do that. Okay, so this was a normal act for him to do. Verse 8, from there, he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel. So we moved from one hill section to another hill section, but this time to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, which means he stayed there for a bit. How long? According to what we get into verse 10, probably not very long, but he pitched a tent, his tent there in this hill country east of Bethel on the west. So Bethel's on the west and I is on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now we don't, we don't know why he built this altar other than he's trusting God. He's wanting to follow God more fully, and he's taking the appropriate steps and doing the things that he needs to do and that he should be doing. That was a normal thing to build these altars. Now, Bethel, uh, Bethel back in the day at that point was Luz. Let's take a look at duh, 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 2819. Oh, yeah. Look at 2819. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Now, I want to backtrack really, really fast because I, I did. I missed I missed a scripture here before. When we we're talking about this, this tree, this terebinth or this oak in Shechem, this was a known location. This was a very known location. And we actually get another note of that in Joshua 24, 26. So let's just look at that really fast. Joshua 24, 26. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God 
and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And that is the terebinth, that is the oak that is spoken of here at Shechem. That is another note of this place being a part where God is working. And when you consider cosmic geography, these things really make sense, okay? These things really make sense that they are setting things in a, in a place and expecting God to work in certain areas. That was the normal concept. Verse 9, after they, he set up that, they pitched their tent, right? They called upon the name of the Lord. And then, verse 9, and Abram journeyed on. So he stayed there for a bit because he pitched his tent and they were staying for a little bit. Then they journey on, still going towards Negev. Now, Negev was also Negev, depending on how you spell it. You know, there's, there's a couple different spellings, N-E-G-E-B or N-E-G-E-V as in Victor. Same place. It's a really, really dry desert area that's just south of Jerusalem. Now, verse 10. Now, there was famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. We've heard this a few times, right? If you've been in the Bible for very long, you'll know this happens periodically. There is famine and people need help. And so they go into the land of Egypt. Egypt was a very rich land. It was a very powerful land. They were a conquering and ruling people. It was just, it was an idea. They, they had, excuse me, they had the Nile River there place of water to where they could get the water that they would need. It just made sense that that was a, a place to go to take care of your family. And so they get ready and Abram says, we're going to go to Egypt to sojourn there, to, to ride out the storm of this situation. They doubled down. Okay, Moses kind of doubles down on the narrative here and saying, for the famine was severe in the land. And I, I think that's an important piece that we want to keep in mind. Things that wasn't just, hey, there's a little bit of a famine. We're just going to, you know, wait here. No, things were bad. Like he was trying to follow God. Okay. He was trying to, to do what it was that God was asking him to do. But things got so bad that they needed to pull out from that area and move to a different region. And was this the right thing to do? You know what? I wasn't there. I'm not in that situation. I can't make that call. It turns into a, a little bit of a hairy situation, but... I wasn't there to make that call. I don't know. And, you know, we get a couple different lessons from this here in the scriptures, but at the end of the day, God still uses Abraham and Sarah to create the chosen people, to create the people of Israel and to send Jesus through to save mankind. So, you know, I'm not saying don't worry about what you're doing. I'm saying do it and do everything as unto the Lord, like do things with, with trepidation, but make sure you're doing the, the things that God's calling you to do and do it with a clear conscience. 11 to 13, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. That's, man, that's, I mean, that's flirting with his wife still. It's amazing, right? Anyway, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So, although it's likely that, that Sarai is in her 50s or 60s at this point, if he's in his 75, some commentaries say she was 65 at this point. All right, she's... Somewhere in that zone, okay? She has maintained her beauty. Now, lifespans were a lot longer, but that doesn't mean that there hasn't been stress. We already have seen certain situations to where family members were getting killed and they had to flee, right? So the stuff, like there's stress happening, there's different life things that are happening, but she has maintained her beauty to the point where he knows we're gonna get there and they are going to want you and they're gonna want you bad enough that they're gonna kill me. So tell them you're my sister. Well, there's, if you only read this section in this part, you might say, why would he say that? Why, you know, why would she claim to be a sister? That's a really awkward thing. You know, nobody would want to be married to their sister. Well, yeah, let's, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 20 verses 11 to 13. And this was the other incident where <laughs> this same line got them in trouble. Abraham said, I did it because I thought, because 
Another king was saying, why'd you do this? I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me, or you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Okay, so they, they had already made this agreement that this is the way it's going to happen. And apparently she, yeah, was his half-sister. She was his sister. That's, I mean, that, that law obviously wasn't in place, <laughs> okay? And there wasn't exactly as much population. So different things were happening. Okay, so be careful how you judge people. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Let's just keep going. So, but yes, he is showing a real lack of faith in God and God's promise at the time. And that is one of the key things that people will always point out with this when, when you're going through commentaries. This shows a true lack of, of Abram's faith in God and God's promise because he promised to give them a giant nation and to bless all the peoples and to do all this. That wouldn't happen if he was dead because they didn't have kids yet. Okay, thanks. I, I, I just like point out the, the, the obvious, Captain Obvious. Like, what? duh, hello. We, I think that goes without saying. Like The fact that that is the main point that commentaries are, are talking about is it's missing the subtleness of this and and some of the other obvious pieces that I think really need to be stated, but never are. Their background is pagan. Pagan backgrounds are you do things for your gods in hopes that your gods don't eat you and kill you. It's all about do things to appease the gods, keep them happy so that you don't die. Okay, so that they don't just maliciously kill you or just out of fun kill you. Okay, God is saying, I want to bless you. I want to do this. This is a change of mindset completely from everything they've known, from their, their surroundings. Their surroundings were pagans, straight up hardcore pagans. This is going to take a little bit of time. It's like today. If somebody comes to Jesus and that is not the background that they have, there's a little bit of change that happens. And that we call that sanctification. It's becoming more like Jesus, right? It's that process of going forward. It's not instantaneous for most people. Most of the time, it's a process and things take time and it's a gradual change. The, the Holy Spirit, God changes you bit by bit as he sees fit. And sometimes that's through going through trials, going through tribulations, making stupid mistakes because we all do it, right? We all make mistakes. That's okay. And going through it, trusting that God's going to make things work out, doing our best to follow God and doing our best to do what it is that God's asking us to do, doing our best to follow and trusting that God's filling in the gaps and doing everything else because he knows that we can't do it on his own. Okay, so the point here to keep in mind is, two, is twofold. Yes, this shows a lack of faith that God is going to fulfill and do what it is that he's going to do. But we also need to have a flip side of that coin and recognize this is a very different thing for them. They've never, they have no other examples of this other than Noah. They have no other examples to follow. They're setting the stage. They don't know what to do. So yeah, God's going to be a little gracious on that, okay? So it's okay. But let's continue on. 14 to 16. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Let's pause here. So many people, again, in different commentaries, this just shows that women were treated like objects. Okay, yes. In ancient societies, there was a difference in, in men and women throughout Basically, all of human history, there has been a very distinct difference between men and women. It hasn't been except for the last, what, three years in Western society that some of this has really changed, like that there's not, no longer a difference. You can't say there's a difference. Okay, so all of human history, there has been a drastic difference between man and woman. The man is the head of the household. Okay, that's this, especially you get into the Near East, into these civilizations and this, these societies, this is normal. Okay, this is normal. This is not them trying to say this woman had no value. It's actually trying to say the opposite. The point of this right here is trying to say 
that she was such an amazing woman, at least by appearance, but then also by her attitude, because if she had a bad attitude, they, nobody would want to be around her anyway, right? It's the same thing, right? She was an amazing woman, and they were in awe of how fantastic she was, okay? That's what's actually being said here. This is not a look at how horrible it was that women were seen as so, no, that's not what's trying to be said. What's trying to be said was she was at such a high caliber in so many different ways that everyone wanted to be with her. This is supposed to be flattering, not horrific. So when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princess, excuse me, princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. Why? And that might be an interesting concept. Why is that the case? Why didn't the princes want her? Remember, she's probably in her 50s or 60s. She's not young. I mean, people were living over 100 years. So, I mean, she, but still, she's not like super, super young. So these princes are probably younger and saying, no, I need a, a younger woman because it was the custom of the, of the day that men would actually still marry younger than them, not usually older than them. And so they would praise her to their father, to the Pharaoh saying, hey, this is, she's more your age. And wow. So they praise her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now, one of the interesting things here is the word, because we've kind of discussed a lot of this, and this seems like a very nitpicky point, but the word had in verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had. He here is Abram. Okay, the, the reference here is, is to Abram. He had sheep. This isn't saying Pharaoh had sheep and all this other. Well, duh, he's the ruler of the land. Of course, he's got lots of stuff and lots of animals. Okay, that was a sign of power. This is saying Sarai was such a, not to sound sexist, but she was such a prize that the dowry that he's willing to pay and did pay, not only did he not kill Abram, which by the way, I want your sister. Oh, look, there's no other family members. You could totally do that. Okay. I mean, that's not an honorable thing to do, not a good thing to do, but it could have been done. Okay. And then he could have kept all of these things. No, the Pharaoh wanted to bless that family for the wonder that was Sarai. And he did so with a lot of stuff. The had here is actually a very vague term though. He had it should be written, but because it is so vague, you get a slightly different take on multiple different commentaries because that word, it's kind of a placeholder word and it means almost a thousand different things. What's really being said here was he was given. Abram was given. So, and for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram and he, Abram, had or was given sheep, oxen, Male donkeys, these are plural, by the way, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, plural, and camels. He was given enough to where he could run and, and be the leader of an entire city himself for Sarai. This was a big thing. This was meant to bless her family that's her brother, because normal with that dowry, you would give the father. And if the father's not there, you would then give the next man in charge in the family, which at this point was Abram. But the Lord, meaning Yahweh, afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, while there's no direct place here saying that they had intimacy, that they laid together in a biblical sense, there's there's no indication of that here directly. Some commentaries say these plagues were likely due to that action anyway, and maybe they were, you know, STDs or something. But again, if that was the case, why why isn't Abram having these issues? Why? I mean, it's just one of those, some of that stuff doesn't even make sense. Like they're, they're writing things in there that, that you couldn't possibly write into this. And, and so yeah, ignore that. The whole point here is, again, God's afflicting. There's a problem. 
and he's setting the stage and says, whoa, 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 no, I'm going to bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, even though Pharaoh honored him. He honored him by giving him all this stuff. He paid this immaculate dowry and as a blessing for Sarai. Okay, he was kind of duped into this. But because there's now dishonoring Sarai and dishonoring Abram by taking his wife, even though he didn't know, God puts these afflictions on them. 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, which means at this point, chances are Sarai is actually kind of opened up and said, well, what is all of this happening? Why is all of this happening ever since you've been here? Well, that man that was actually, you know, that's my brother. Well, he's actually also my husband. And then you get to 18. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Like, take her back. I don't want this. It's kind of like Jonah. Why is the storm happening? Well, it's because of me. Well, your God can deal with you. Take him back, right? Take her back. And says, take her back, take her and go. Verse 20. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh didn't take all of his stuff back according to this. Pharaoh let him take all that stuff. Just leave, just leave. Take your wife, take this, leave. I don't want to, I don't want these curses on my household, on my country. We don't need this. Take her and go. So because of God's call and blessing on Abram and Sarai, God deals a blow to Pharaoh and Egypt and Pharaoh's house. And it's likely knowledge of Pharaoh that caused Abram and Sarai to lie in the first place. Because he's probably known, you know, this was a thing. You even see this later on in the Old Testament, later on in the scriptures. You get somebody who, oh man, that woman is beautiful. Oh, but she's married. Well, that's an easy fix for someone in my position, right? So it's, things have known of this and that potentially people in that area, kings and rulers of that area were known and notorious to do this was probably, probably part of the reason why they were, were lying and doing this. Was it a sign of a lack of faith? Sure. But that's, they needed to, you know, in their mind, it's probably better to be defiled than it is to be dead. And, and so they're, they're trying to survive and, and live and to do these things. And again, maybe not the best way to do it. In fact, since Jesus, we, we, we know we shouldn't be doing things definitely like that. But, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the mindset they're coming from. And again, they're, they were, had a pagan background. This was, you just did what you could to survive. Everything was all about survival. Now, I do want to point out before we wrap this up, because we're, we're right at the wrap-up point, these situations really very well parallel the situation that comes later also in Egypt. So Israel going to Egypt, bad. And there's some there's some parallels to this. So write these down, go over them later. We're not going to read them today, but go ahead and go over them later. There's the famine in the land that sends people to Egypt. You can look at Genesis 47, 13, see that. They sojourn in Egypt, 47, 27. There's a desire to kill the males, but not the females. You see that in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. There's a plague and all the plagues on Egypt. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, all the way to chapter 11, verse 10. There's taking the spoils from Egypt, right? So they take the things that Egypt gave them, or they take other things, and they took and left Egypt. You see that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. Deliverance, Exodus chapter 15, going to Negev or Negev, whichever spelling is in your Bible, okay? It's that dry desert region south of Israel. Again, you see that in Numbers 13, verse 17 and verses 20, or verse 22, excuse me. So Numbers 13, 17 and 22. These directly parallel the situation that later happens and that the people deal with. And Moses, who's taken the people out of Israel, is recounting. And so these parallels really make a lot of sense. All right. What can we take away from this? So even seeing Abram respond to God's call, he wasn't perfect at having faith and doing things completely by the power of God. Okay. He wasn't perfect at it. Even though he's the father of the faith, he wasn't perfect at it. God still loved him, and he, and he still loved Sarai, and he kept his promise to create the nation of Israel and to bless all the peoples through them. 
God's plan was bigger than their shortcomings, okay? That's something we all need to keep in mind all the time. God's plan, God's desires are bigger than our own personal shortcomings. The example in Egypt is not great. It's not a great example of what to do. In reality, it's an example of what not to do. Abram's faith seemed to waver and to keep going back to his old pagan roots from time to time. And this, there, there were obvious times of forward movement and forward momentum, but it wasn't instantaneous. Hopefully that sounds familiar to you, maybe with your life. Finally, allow God to work in your life in his way and in his timing. Longing to want to be better is a good sign that you're aligning with the Lord. Do not get discouraged and overwhelmed by defeatism. Trust in God's plan for and in your life. Thank you, God, for today, for your word. I ask that you you be with us this week, that you bless us. And Father, just give us the courage to go out and do what it is that you have for us. God, help us know that even when we have our shortcomings, that you're big enough to work through that. But just because we know you're big enough to work through it doesn't mean that we just go ahead and fall in and, and embrace our shortcomings, that we still try to get better and we still try to do better and be a better follower of yours. Thank you, God, so much for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, guys. Hope you enjoyed this. We will talk to you next time. There's a good chance we will not have it next week, I know, but I'll, I'll keep you guys in the loop with that. Have a great one. We'll talk to you later. God bless. Bye-bye.